<laughs> Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for the privilege of your worship and, and of the study of your word. We ask you to please bless our time in it this morning for your glory and for our good. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, Pastor Joe's question last week prompted me to think a little bit more about um, the unconditionality of the promises that God gave to Israel in the Old Testament. It, I'm going to read a little prepared paragraph and then we can discuss uh, this idea. An important tenet of dispensationalism is that God's promises to Old Testament Israel are always unconditional. This is important to dispensationalism because although it appears ancient Israel lost the land due to infidelity and unbelief, dispensationalism cannot look either forward to the, to, to the millennium or back to 1948 for literal fulfillment unless the matter is removed outside of Israel's control or worthiness and placed in God's hands. By placing their possession of the promised land solely in God's hands, they can better dodge the point that Israel lost the land through infidelity to God and may therefore they hold, since it's out of their hands, it's unconditional with respect to them, it's in God's hands because it's his promise. Therefore, they can come back to the land. But the conditionality we find in the divine promises appears to us to be there. However, the condition is fulfilled by God. So we, in the reform side, the covenant theology side, for the most part, believe that there are conditions to these, co these, these covenantal promises. But God meets these conditions himself because we are unable to. And that condition is what? What do we find God demanding of his people in both Old and New Testaments. Faith, right? True faith. The condition of the covenant is true faith. True faith is a gift of God. Has anybody heard that before, that true faith is a gift from God? Let's uh, look at a couple of quick passages here, or look at a couple of passages quickly. Let's go to Ephesians 2. And verses or verse eight. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So here Paul tells us that we are saved by grace through faith faith being the instrument of our salvation, the instrument by which God saves us by his own grace, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. A lot of times, you'll find if you're talking to a dispensationalist, they're also of the Arminian persuasion. And so they would look at a verse like this, and they would, they would say, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. The and that is referring not to faith, but to salvation as a whole. 
But I don't know how that helps the Arminian case. Because if faith is certainly an indispensable part of salvation as a whole, they just made their case worse because every aspect of our salvation is a gift of God, not just faith. So I don't see that help, how that helps them. They rely on a Greek, uh, they resort to the Greek of the passage, and they say, the, and that is neuter in the Greek, and so it cannot be referring back to a feminine noun like faith in Greek. But uh, Paul doesn't seem to follow that, that rule. Yes? Yeah, I was just kind of curious how they came up with this, this idea. Was this idea, whether it was or whatever, how did that really start? And was it so different as far as, you say, Arminianism or liberalism or, or any other type of theology that's out there? How did they come up with this, especially looking at you know, the church age versus the Old Testament and various dispensations where they've gone all over the place on But how did they come up with these ideas and really sell them uh, and get this thing started? And, and, and really, what was the point of it? In the early 20th century, um, well, prior to that, in the 18th century, there was a guy named Darby in England, and uh, he uh, came up with these ideas himself, and I guess there might have been some uh, reliance upon other people that are unnamed, at least in my mind, back in merry old England, where he was. And um, so if we're tracing it back to where the original thinker was, the one that we know about, or that I know about at least, was the Darby in England in the late 18th century, uh, late 19th century, I believe, actually. And then it was picked up. He used to travel to the United States to spread his views. And uh, right around the time of uh, World War I, or prior to that, actually, uh, early part of last century, uh, Schofield published his, his Bible, um, which had the footnotes throughout. And that's where he argues these things. It's roughly coinciding with the... Uh, uh, the agreement uh, by the British government to uh, establish a homeland for the Jews in uh, Canaan, in Palestine. So I don't know if there's a demonstrable connection between the two, but the concept of the Jews returning to the land which belongs to them to this day seems to, in the United States, to become popular about the same time that there was this political movement. I can't ex draw an explicit tie between Schofield and his notes and the Balfour Declaration and you know, roughly coinciding in time, which is that that was when Britain agreed that uh, they would help establish a Jewish, Jewish state. So doctrinally, we trace it back to Darby. Uh, its influence in America is devoted almost entirely to Schofield's Bible. And uh, that's about all I can say about that. Oh, because I was curious, you know, you mentioned Darbyism. I'm thinking of you know, the Second Great Awakening and all the stuff that was happening out in that area in New York. Yeah. And all that. And, and is that where maybe it got, because all kinds of things were happening. 
and people are buying into all kinds of stuff. So yeah, sure but I wouldn't, I wouldn't trace it back to upstate New York. I, I'm, I'm from upstate New York, but I, New York originally, but uh, I used, I'm fond of making the joke that uh, all American heresies come from upstate New York, and uh, whether that's Mormonism or you name it, there's lots of it that comes out of there. Um, but uh, yeah, the, uh, the Schofield Bible was published by Oxford Uni University Press, uh, so not an American publisher, and uh, which is kind of odd because he had never been published before, and uh, I'm not sure what to make of all of that. But um, anyway, so that's that's the best I can come up with as far as provenance is Darby, then Schofield, and it was picked up by Americans uh, like Chafer, who founded DTS, and uh, and then it just grew grew from there. Okay. So here in Ephesians 2.8, uh, we saw that grace, by grace through faith we are saved, and, that's not, and, that's not, and that, not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. Um, let's check uh, another passage. Let's go to Philippians 1.29. Philippians 1.29. For, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So you can see here that it, the believing in Christ has been given to us, just like suffering for Christ has been gifted to us. Interestingly, Paul uses a neuter uh, pronoun to here to refer to the feminine noun of salvation in the Greek grammar as well. So the argument that back in Ephesians 2.8 that the Greek grammar drives us to reject the idea that faith is a gift of God that hangs on the grammar because there, there's an indefinite or neuter pronoun referring, we argue, to faith. Arminians say you can't do that with a neuter pronoun. It's got to be a feminine gender pronoun in order to refer back. Well, Paul does it again here. Uh, and this time the noun, the feminine noun, it refers back to is salvation. Okay. Also, if you're interested in looking these up, you know how God requires all men everywhere to repent. The, the book of Acts tells us God requires man to repent. And in the Reformed Church, we observe in the scripture that the repentance that's required is a faithful repentance, and the faith that's required is a repenting faith. So there are two sides of the same coin uh, that God gives us what he requires of us. So God's meeting the condition of the covenant for, of faith and repentance. All that to say, the scriptures also teach that repentance is a gift. I, I won't, we won't go through these three passages, but I'll just give them to you if you want to look them up later. Acts 5.31, I believe 11.18, typo in my notes, so I believe that was 11.18, and 2 Timothy 2.25. Those reveal that the only places in the Bible where the source, the origin of repentance is revealed, to my knowledge, are those three places, and they all reveal that repentance, like faith, is a gift of God.
leading to a conclusion. There was a condition laid upon Israel for its possession and its enjoyment of the land back then. And that condition was true faith. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Uh, 3, 18 to 4, verse 2. 3, 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed uh, to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith to those who listened. So Israel, remember, they were brought out of bondage in Egypt by the Lord. And that first generation that he brought out of Egypt, he consigned to die in the wilderness because of their unbelief. And this is what the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews is referring to. That first generation was faithless, but for a handful that we know by, you know, from our study of the scriptures, they are only faithful by God's gift. It was their children who were raised in the wilderness that were brought into the land. So the scriptures teach that the reason that God did not allow that first generation to go into Canaan and to take possession of it is because they did not meet the condition of faith, of belief. They exhibited unbelief, and so they were caused to perish in the wilderness. There was a condition. And you'll see that throughout. The reasons that they are expelled from the land by God, the prophets who come to bear witness against Israel and to uh, convict them, like, prosecuting, like God's prosecuting attorneys, the prophets come along and they, can, they accuse Israel of unbelief and the, uh, the spiritual infidelity that's born of unbelief, like idolatry. And then they're cast out. And so there was a condition. But we know that God met that condition with his elect, with the believing remnant in the Old Testament, and as they were called, and as they were called in the New Testament as well, and the New Testament era church. So before we move on to discuss today's passage, uh, I forgot to tell you last week which one we would be looking at. Sorry about that. Are there any questions? Observations? I'll think about faith before we move on. God doesn't look around in the world and look for faith. He's got to put it there because we don't have it. And the consequences of faith as well. The reason God has to give us faith and repentance um, and the consequences of those things, which is obedience, for the most part, because we don't obey perfectly in this life. Um, That's all in God's hands. So God's meeting that condition 
but it's not as if the faith itself is what warrants entry to God's rest, whether it's typified in the, the land of the Old, Test- Old Covenant or uh, his rest as it's understood in coming to Christ and ultimately in consummate glory, enjoying the fullness of Christ and the possession of the Holy Spirit. Um, it's not as if the faith itself is what gets us there. It's by grace you are saved, through faith. That language indicates that faith is, a, is the instrument by which we are united to the one who saves us. So think of faith not as like the treasure chest that buys your admission to heaven and to God's favor. Faith is not itself a quality within us, even if God put it there, that that faith itself warrants our entry into heaven and God's blessing. That's not what the scriptures teach. Think of it Like I said, not as the treasure that buys you entrance to God's blessing in heaven, uh, but um, the key that opens the treasure chest, which is Christ and his person and his work. His merits are that treasure by which, you know, to use an analogy, by which um, we can gain entry, the door pass into heaven. So it's Christ that gets us there. And the, the, the faith that the Spirit works within us is what unites us to this one who does merit heaven by virtue of his work. So just a quick final word about faith there. So for today's passage, let's turn to Hosea 2 for a, uh, some prophetic language. Hosea is the largest and the first of the minor prophets. Hosea 2. The last time or we were also at that time in Hosea 2, seeing how Paul handled it. Let's look at Hosea 2:15 Hosea 2:15 to 18. I guess we'll start in 14. Therefore behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. All right, now who's 
Who's the Lord talking about here through Hosea? Obviously. Old Testament Israel, God's Old Testament church. His covenant people, the visible church. But does this language in 18, take a look at verse 18 again. Does that language ring any bells for anybody in the room? Verse 18. And, and I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. Does it ring a bell? No, I mean the, the, the actual language, the expressions he's using. Hosea, the Lord by Hosea is using. But I, I see where you're going with that, with that. Let's go to Acts chapter 10. Oh, I should have had you look at your, uh, your cross-reference notes again. Because that's a good practice. When you're reading the prophets, read your cross-reference notes. Because, uh, you know, the things we talk about in this, this course may stick with you for a little while, and they may fade after a little while. Um, but the practice of checking your cross-references in your Bible... Uh, if, if adopted, could uh, help you for years to come. Okay, so Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By, mo by no means, Lord, for I have, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So, what's the context here? Peter has this vision. Why was this vision given to Peter? Just so we understand what the context is. He's going to go and visit a Gentile, right? So he has this vision of the sheet coming down out of heaven. And it employs not only the same imagery that we found in Hosea, talking about what God is going to do with Israel. That's what he said through Hosea. He was going to make a covenant for them with those animals. And here in Acts chapter 10, in the context of Peter being told by the Lord to go and minister the gospel to a Gentile, he has this vision. And in that vision, the same theme, the same concept is employed to get this message across to Peter. Because not only foods were unclean back then to the Jews, but Gentiles were unclean. 
clean and unclean was ceremonial law language in Israel uh, to refer to that which is fit for fellowship with God, clean, or unclean, that which is not fit for fellowship with God. So the Gentiles, as a class, were cut off from God's favor. If you wanted to have God's blessing and favor, you had to come and join Israel somehow, like Rahab or uh, Ruth. But interestingly, if you look at the Greek Old Testament of Hosea 2, and the Greek of this passage, the exact same Greek words are used, but they're in different order. They're in the opposite order. It's as if it's as if it's a, a diptych, which is something I learned in art class many many years ago. And a diptych is something that when you open it, it would have two pieces of art here, one here, and then you could close it, take it somewhere, or put it up on your wall, open, but. It would be like that. But if you were to make it like a piece of art here and a mirror here, that's what this would look like between Amos and this passage in Acts. Because the Greek words are employed there, are reversed. Which to my mind emphasizes the fulfillment aspect of this. Because if you look in the mirror, things are reversed. Anyway, there's a principle of fulfillment broached by some scholar whose name I can't remember. And when you see that kind of reversal in the New, Co New Testament of a promise or prophecy or, or a type in the Old Testament, that communicates fulfillment. But I can't really rely on that or ask you to because I can't remember the name of that guy. But it's interesting that the language is exactly the same, just reversed. Yeah. So, what's the point? Well, I guess, are there questions about what I've said so far? Okay, so the point is, in the very same part of Hosea that Paul used to prove his point, like we saw last time, that Gentile inclusion with the people of God fulfills Old Testament end of exile and return to the land prophecies. In the very same part of Hosea, Peter, in the account of his going to the Cornelius, is used to prove the point that Gentiles are no longer unclean as a class. And when he, Peter says this, those are the exact words that he uses. The conclusion we can make regarding this prophecy from Hosea is that in apostolic interpretation, this has to do with the union of Jew and Gentile in the context of the coming new covenant. And that at this time, going back to Hosea's prophecy, at that time, like it says in the, the prophecy, they will be inhabiting the land 
together in peace with these beasts. Now, I don't know how you could see these things being described by the apostles in the New Testament and not see fulfillment. But just say, yeah, it's an interesting application that they're finding in Hosea to prove a point that the Gentiles for the time being are no longer unclean, but the real fulfillment comes later. Now, coming to Acts chapter 10, or Romans 9, like last week, would you come to that conclusion just by looking at those, these two texts in the New Testament? Is there anything in the text of Peter here, when he's talking about this, or when it's being revealed to him about this question, or when Paul was writing in Romans 9, is there anything in these two texts to suggest a later fulfillment, that this is not the fulfillment? What's the natural, literal read of the New Testament? That's something we have to keep in mind because they are going to come to texts like this, the dispensationalists, and say this is a partial fulfillment at best, the real fulfillment's later. But why do they, why do they say that? And it's again, it's going to go back to their hermeneutical principle that unless we see the fulfillment of those ancient prophecies literally with respect to ethnic Jews in 1948 or in the future. God's promises can't be trusted. We can't trust our Bibles. But what if you didn't adopt that position? What if you adopted the position, okay, the, the, the prophets speak this way. In light of Christ, the apostles come along and re reveal that they are to be understood in this way. Why resist it? Why not just embrace it? Why posit, well, beneath or between the lines of these you know, fulfillment language in the New Testament, we should understand that what it's, what's really in the heads of the apostles, despite their words, is that the true fulfillment comes later. You don't see them talking that way. If you were just to read the, the prophets and say, okay, that looks like ethnic Israel returning to the literal land, okay, you read the New Testament and it says Christ is Israel. He's the faithful seed of Abraham. And the church united to him by faith are the recipients of those blessings promised. The fulfillment is in Christ and his bride in the, in the context of the church. And just accept it. But you do have to read between the lines of the New Testament to suggest that, sure, this looks like fulfillment, but it isn't. It's like, uh, what's the uh, famous atheist, uh, Dawkins, is that it? Hawkins? No, that's Stephen Hawking, I think. Um, uh, Richard Dawkins, is that it? He says, you know, the universe is a marvelously intricate thing, I'm paraphrasing, that uh, falsely suggests to the observer that it's been intelligently created. So he's got to really read between the lines of actual revelation 
between what he can see with his eyes and to see a godless universe somehow in there. It's like they're saying of the New Testament, sure, it looks like they're calling this fulfillment, but they're not. And so that's the real difference between covenant theology and how we approach the prophets and dispensationalism and how they approach the prophets. Let's see. So where the prophet in the Old Testament tells of a time when national Israel will dwell in the land, in peace, and in covenant with the wild beasts, the apostle in the New Testament is informed that the wild beasts, Gentiles, have been invited to share a place in the kingdom and to know as a class the same inheritance and covenant relations with God as believing Jews. The people in place, we mentioned that last time or the time before, the people in place promises. The people in place promised to Abraham. That were spoken of in shadowy Old Testament forms and types is transformed in apostolic interpretation to mean Jew and Gentile united to Christ in the kingdom. Any comments or questions at this point? Any doubts? That'd be okay. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. They would say that the Old Testament needs to be read independently and be given its own meaning in its own right. And the New Testament needs to be read in the same way. But what do you do when the apostles interpret the Old Testament promises and prophecies in a way that the Old Testament couldn't quite make clear, or didn't quite make clear? That it's fulfilled in Christ and his church, which includes now the Gentiles. You would really have to, by God's grace, be piecing together a lot of different parts of the Old Testament to, to approximate that vision of clarity that we enjoy just by opening our New Testament. So, to, to my mind, the task of the apostles, among others, was to give us the New Testament so that we would understand how the Old Testament's fulfilled in Christ and his bride. And if you're going to say things like, well, that's what the apostles are saying, but the meaning that they really have is that there's a, a, a greater fulfillment later, not only is to eisegete the text, put meaning in the text that isn't there, but to my mind, takes the job of interpreting the apostles or the prophets authoritatively out of the hands of the, the, the apostles and the New Testament and into the hands of Lewis Ferry Chafer, who wrote Systematic Theology. Or Schofield, who for the, f the first person who ever to put notes on the same page as the Holy Text was uh, him and his publisher. You know, so that most of your commentaries were separate volumes. This was the first to put the commentary on the same page as the text. 
So it takes the, that job away from the apostles and says to the church, they are saying X. Our guys, these smart theologians, there's no doubt they love the Lord. We're telling you that it's X plus one. Because if it's not X plus one, that is partial fulfillment now, but a future greater fulfillment in national Israel, we're not reading the Old Testament on its own terms. But what makes people think, what makes, makes the church think that we're supposed to read the Old Testament on its own terms when we have the New Testament now? Again, it boils down to, are you going to approach the Old Testament as an unbelieving Jewish person or approach the Old Testament as a Christian, united to Christ, the true seed of Abraham, and his authoritative interpretation, uh, the authoritative interpretation of the Old Testament given to us by the apostles charged with that, that uh, work to help us understand the Bible and show the fulfillment in Christ. Any other comments or questions? Let's turn back to Ephesians 2. I'll give you another example of uh, this, and I'll ask you to tell me what you believe the dispensational reply or handling of Paul's words here in Ephesians 2. Starting at verse 11 of Ephesians 2, we'll go to chapter 3, verse 6. 2.11 to 3.6 of Ephesians. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, 
how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So, I mean, note here, he's talking to the Gentiles before they were cut off, but throughout this text, it talks about the two being made into one. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about those who are called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles, right? So the idea of Christ's work is to come and to unite these formerly estranged parties by abolishing the law of commandments contained in ordinances. That's reference to the ceremonial law, which has been abolished in Christ's work. But he, by, by his coming, uh, he has, by his work, torn down uh, the types of the ceremonial law that pointed to him in his work. They'd served their purpose. They no longer needed to point forward to a coming Christ in his work. So they were abolished. And that ceremonial law was what rendered the Gentiles unclean, unfit for fellowship with God. So they were without God, without hope in the world prior to that as a class. Notable exceptions, Rahab and Ruth. So this is a beautiful passage. It talks about there being hostility between both and God and between each other, Jew and Gentile between each other and between both and God. And the person and work of Christ tears down that hostility. So here we are. What is the dispensational response to the clarity offered by the apostle in this passage about Jew and Gentile relations with respect to God? It talks about being one people, being built into one household for God. What did the epistle to the Hebrews say about the household of God? Moses was faithful within it. Old Testament saint. Christ is Lord over that single household here. We're just, the Jew and Gentiles are being described as that household, being structured, constructed by the Holy Spirit into this household of God, the two being made into one. So how does dispensationalism handle this text, do you think? Because I'm not going to give you the answer this time. Somebody's got to... How do you just say it's partial... Exactly right. They would say, well, it's talking about the church. But the church is a special cut off, you know, demarcated provision of God's grace to the Gentiles. But it's only a hiccup in God's true plan, which is for uh, the uh, national Israel. So, but do you get that idea reading this text? You have to get that idea reading this text, though I think it speaks so very clearly about God's relation to Jew and Gentile now. You, gotta, you have to read between the lines to see that. You have to read between the lines to see that. You have to come to the New Testament with a principle of exegeting the Old Testament. But their principle of exegeting the Old Testament drives them 
to the error of eisegeting the New Testament. Any comments or questions about that before we close? Yeah. Modern day research, just surfing the web, uh, I noticed in, uh, just conducting a word search, uh, sticking the King James Version, using version. But do they have any answer for, I noticed that the dispensation, do you have to struggle to find various forms of the word? And I only found 20 cases of it used throughout the entire Bible. Whereas covenant, just a pure, simple <coughs> covenant, is over 300. Is there any way that they try to reconcile which is the greater meaning and the, the amount of use of context seems to be covenant? I'm not as widely read in the dispensational literature as I should be, perhaps, but I would say that they would say uh, that we don't acknowledge the non-existence, or we don't assert the non-existence of covenants in God's relationships to man. But those covenants are tied together with and subserve the dispensational structure that God has. And it's undergone a lot of changes, too. I mean, there were seven dispensations for... C.I. Schofield, but later dispensationalists have, there's a variety of number of, I, I know of four, or I know of one uh, writer, I just read a book and he was saying that there was four. So, uh, I mean, we would admit too that God has dispensations in his dealings with man. We would call them administrations, like the, the covenant of grace has within it various administrations and they're kind of the opposite that their dispensation has within it certain covenants I think that that would be an accurate portrayal um, but yeah they, they would be unfazed I think that they're largely unfazed by anything that you can say because no matter what you can point out about the authoritative interpretation of the Old Testament that we have in the New Testament they can always say sure but between the lines you must believe there is more the apostles are thinking, yeah, but there's future fulfillment for the national, for national Israel as a distinct uh, body of recipients of God's blessing with their own inheritance, because that's what's promised in the Old Testament. Uh, I think that the work of Christ was, like Paul is saying, was to abolish this division between Jew and Gentile. And when the scriptures come along in the New Testament and redefine Israel to be Christ in union with his church of all, both testaments and redefine Jewishness to be uh, Christians those who are united to the true Jew and Israelite Jesus then keeping that in mind as you read these texts there's no reason to perpetuate this distinction between Jew and Gentile You have to posit, again, authoritative, as it were, revelation from dispensational theologians who tell you what the meaning of those Old Testament prophets really is. But with that, we're out of time. Um, and I didn't put down what the, in my notes what, was the, what you should look at for next, next week, but that's okay. All right, let's close with prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the passages of your word that you uh, 
showed us today. We ask you to please grant us understanding, uh, grant us understanding that we might know you better and understand your gracious dealings with this lost and exiled race, uh, what those relations really are, and what you've done for us through the true Israelite, the true vine, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask you to please be with us now as we gather together to worship our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We ask that you would do this for your glory and for our good. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody.